This fall, I am uh, teaching a class at Vanderbilt that focuses on the concept of success and the American dream. Now, you might ask, what do you know about that? Which would be a fair question. But we're answering the question, what is the American dream and how is it understood? How do we define success in life? You know, some people define the American dream simply as an opportunity for upward mobility. Others say it's the ability to build a better life than your parents had. Others say it is directly tied to access to quality education. And others say it's simply about living a meaningful and, and happy life with meaning and purpose. So in the class, we're looking at the research of guys like uh, Robert Putnam from Harvard, Andrew Del Banco at Columbia University, um, Timothy Carney from the American Enterprise Institute. We're looking at some of the research that Senator Ben Sass uh, from Nebraska has done and put into some of his uh, recent books. And so the topics in this class include marriage and family and parenting and education, polarization, civility, uh, character, values, the role that religion plays in American culture. And, um, and you can imagine that with 18 to 22-year-olds, we have some pretty interesting discussions in this class. I started with some working hypotheses when we began the semester, and I want to share a few of those with you today. In the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers of the United States say that there are certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what is happiness, and how do we pursue it? Secondly, Research has shown that the birth lottery plays a significant role in determining an individual's starting point in life. So family of origin and upbringing, that does matter. However, there are many people who have broken generational cycles of poverty to go on and achieve great things. So it is possible. Third, success in life should not be solely defined by socioeconomic status, wealth, and career advancement. Factors such as marriage and family and faith, friendship, character, service, integrity, all of these things matter in living a successful and meaningful life. And nobody else can define success for you. Only you can define that. And fourth, one of the great challenges that I see in higher education today is to prepare well-rounded students for life beyond the academy which involves the formation of values, character, and resilience. So high GPAs and test scores do not guarantee success in life. They're great, but it doesn't mean that you're gonna be successful. So as you can imagine, I have students from all different family backgrounds. I have students, some who are first-generation college students at Vanderbilt, and I have others who have you know, long pedigrees of uh, Ivy League and Vanderbilt and other great schools and their family, but we talk about all of these things and I really enjoy hearing their thoughts about how do they see life playing out? What do they think the future looks like? How do they understand American society and culture right now? And it's fascinating, some of the discussions that we have. We all know that Jesus taught in parables. He used parables to talk about the kingdom of God. But we also know that there are many encounters in the Gospels, like the one we've heard this morning, where we can gain insight into who Jesus was and, and what he is challenging his followers to do and to be. There are roughly 38 parables in the Gospels, 
and it's amazing to think that almost half of those parables, almost half, deal with issues of money and possessions. He talked about that subject perhaps more than any other subject. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Heart always follows treasure, but treasure doesn't necessarily follow heart. He says, no one can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And I don't think it's a coincidence in Matthew 6 that we go from those classic teachings on money right into that passage on worry. Because Jesus knew that many of our worries, many of our stresses in life would be directly tied to money and possessions. And that's why those teachings are are back to back. Now, remember this. Jesus wasn't trying to raise money. That's what preachers do. We take these passages and we say, we need you to support the church. We need you to help us get this new building and chapel built. That's what preachers do. But Jesus wasn't trying to raise money. He was simply talking and teaching on a subject that he knew was universal in life. And Jesus knew that our relationship with money and stuff was one of the most complicated and stressful relationships that we would have. Money is perhaps the most common idol in our culture. Tim Keller, a New York pastor, says money is the most common counterfeit God that there is. When it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lust, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. But talking about money makes people uncomfortable. But Jesus did it anyway. In Matthew 19, Justin read this text. We have this encounter with Jesus and the rich young man. In other gospels, it's called the rich young ruler or, or just the rich man. But this guy comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, then keep the commandments. And the man says, well, well, which ones? Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody came up to me this morning and said, oh, so you're moving from sex to money this morning, huh? What is left? Well, the young man said to him, I've kept all these commandments. What still do I lack? And Jesus pauses and then says to him, well, if you wish to be perfect, then go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away grieving. He went away sad because he had many possessions. I want to get right to it this morning, and I want to share with you what I believe are some of the basic takeaways of this encounter that Jesus had with the rich young man. What can we learn from this passage? First of all, I don't think that Jesus is saying that wealth is bad. That, to me, is not 
the point of this story. In fact, wealth, when used properly and generously, can make a dramatic difference in the lives of other people. But what Jesus is saying is that wealth that enslaves us, wealth that defines us, wealth that keeps us from focusing on God, wealth that makes us selfish and self-centered can be one of the worst things that can ever happen to us as human beings. Money makes a great servant in life, but money makes a terrible master. Secondly, Jesus is not saying that all of us have to go and sell all that we own in order to come and follow him. You can do that. Nobody's stopping you. People would actually be very impressed if you did that. You would probably get complimented. But Jesus said this to the rich man because it was his money and his possessions rather than his character and his generosity that defined him. You see, things are meant to be used and people are meant to be loved. But sometimes in our culture, we get that backwards and we love things and we use people. And that's not good, but it happens all the time. Materialism is a slippery slope. Why? Because there is always something newer, better, and bigger out there. I mean, think about it. You've got the iPhone 9, works fine, pretty nice. The iPhone 11 just came out, it's got three cameras on it. You wanna go get it. You got a 2012 car, runs great, has 80,000 miles on it. The 2018 car is now year old and man, it's got some fancy features on it. It can, it can parallel park itself. Uh, you live in this neighborhood, got plenty of space, uh, enough room for your family. Uh, wouldn't it be better to live in that neighborhood and have a bigger house so you could just have a bigger house, right? Materialism is a slippery slope because there's always something bigger and better that's out there. And so many people feel like whatever it is that they have, it's inadequate and they need something better. Third takeaway. I think Jesus is saying that for some people, for some people, it takes a dramatic change in lifestyle for the message of Christ to really take root. Some people will get it, and some people don't get it. Globally speaking, Christianity has been growing and thriving in third world countries in the southern hemisphere where people have little to nothing and they have to struggle. And so what you see is that hope is alive in those countries and faith is alive and generosity is alive. But what I really think is going on here is that Christ does not have to compete with all the material things and the stuff that money can buy. And so all some of these folks have is their faith and they stake their lives on it. The choice is not whether we're going to worship God or worship the devil. The choice is whether or not we'll worship God or our stuff. And unfortunately, many people in our culture choose their money and their stuff. Possessions become possessive. Frederick Nietzsche once predicted that one day in Western culture, money would replace God. And sadly, for many people, that has come true. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus says, you, you have to choose. You can't serve both. You can't worship both. Fourth, 
There is a major difference, I think, between moral respectability and true discipleship. Basically, moral respectability revolves around not doing certain things, obeying the law, obeying the rules. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. All that is good advice. We're supposed to follow those rules. But true discipleship revolves around actually doing things. Being a Christian requires much more than just being a nice and decent person. I had this professor at Princeton Seminary named Kenda Dean, and she used to talk about this concept called moralistic therapeutic deism. And she said she worried that at some point, youth and young people in our culture would just look at Christianity as moralistic therapeutic deism, that all you have to do to be a Christian is just be a nice person. Well, guess what? Being a nice person is good. That's a great starting point. But there's so much more to being a Christian and to following Jesus than just that. When the rich man approached Jesus, he told him that he had obeyed all of the commandments ever since his youth, and he had never done any harm to anybody. And all of that was true. But for Jesus, this was not enough. It became obvious that although the rich man had never done harm to others, he had also never gone out of his way to help others. He was comfortable. He was complacent. He wasn't necessarily living a life that put other people first. And Jesus knew that. And so he challenged him. Fifth, and lastly this morning, money causes some people to think that they are better than others. But they're not. In the kingdom of God, everybody is the same. Remember that passage from the Old Testament when Samuel's looking for the new king of Israel and he goes out and finds David, the shepherd boy, in the field? And he's like, no way. There's no way this guy could be the next king of Israel. He's too small. Remember that passage where it says, you know, do not look on his outward appearance or his stature. It says uh, that mortals, you know, God does not see as mortals see. Mortals look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When we look at each other, we see success, we see status, we see nice things. But when God looks at us, God sees our heart. You may have a lot of money and stuff, you may have nothing. God sees our heart. And so I think the question that we have to ask is, what kind of heart do we have? And do we treat everybody the same? At the end of the passage, Jesus says, you know, it'll be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, A.J. Levine uh, has addressed this before. Some people say there was this, you know, this, this eye of a needle gate in Jerusalem, and yet the camel had to get on, it, get on its knees to go. And she says, no, that's, that's inaccurate. This is hyperbole. But the disciples freak out and they go, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus gives us that great verse. He says, well, for mortals, it's impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Whether you have a little bit of money, whether you have a medium amount of money, whether you have a lot of money, what are you doing with it? And what does it say about you? You know, some people think that, that money is the answer to, to happiness. 
and, and, and it might be the answer to some security, but if the happiness thing is true, then wouldn't the wealthiest people in our culture be the happiest people? But we know that that's not always true. Let me close with this story. Back in 1928, a group of the world's most successful people met in Chicago at the Edgewater Beach Hotel. Here's who was at this meeting. The president of the largest utility company, the greatest wheat speculator, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, a particular member of the president's cabinet, the greatest bear on Wall Street, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, and the head of the world's greatest monopoly. So collectively, these financial tycoons were uh, controlling more wealth than there was in the U.S. Treasury at that time. And for years, newspapers and magazines had been printing their success stories and urging the youth of our country to follow them and follow their example. Well, 25 years later, somebody tracked what happened to this group. Here's what happened. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life. He died broke. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Kooten, died overseas insolvent. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, served a term in Sing Sing Prison. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could go home and die. The greatest bear on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. The president of the Bank of International Settlements, Leon Frazier, committed suicide. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivar Druger, committed suicide. All of these men had learned how to make money and how to be successful in life, but for whatever reason, not one of them had learned how to live. And so here's the deal, I think. Jesus is concerned with how we live, not with what we have or don't have. You might have a lot, you might have a little. Jesus is concerned with how we live, with what's on our heart. Jesus is concerned with matters of the heart. Amen.